in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, everybody. All right, so where are you in, in your Bible reading? How are you doing with Bible reading? Finish Revelation. Finish Revelation. <laughs> who, who wins? Who wins? God wins. Yes, good, good. How about the rest of you guys? What are you reading? Who's doing the uh, chronological reading? You guys, some of you, y'all doing that? We're here into uh, Judges. We have some of my favorite stories in the early uh, Judges. We have the Ehud, you know, uh, stabbing that guy, you know, the fat guy. And then we've got uh, uh, JL, like, hammering the, uh, the nail through Sisera's head. Yes, yes. If you've ever, uh, yes, if you ever seen those uh, Bibles that are geared specifically for women, they cut those stories out. You know, it's it's a lot more of the love. You know. <laughs> yes. Yep. Yep. Yeah. There's a lot of spearing and stabbing and uh, fun stories. So, all right. Somebody who's not doing the chronological Bible. What What are you reading? What are you reading? Oh, good. That's a good plan. Good idea. Somebody else? Did I hear? Exodus? Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's true. Eventually they do. I hate to spoil it for you, Frank, but uh, they make it. Yes. Oh, cool. Okay, so you're doing one that's like an Old Testament, New Testament, and like, does it include like a psalm or a proverb or something? Oh, cool. Cool. I've done one where it has, I did for many years, one where it was like an Old Testament, a New Testament, a psalm, and then like one or two verses of Proverbs. That's a cool, cool way to do it too. So, good, good. Anybody else want to share what you're reading in the Bible? Well, hey, I encourage you, uh, if you want to jump in, if you are not reading your Bible and you don't have a plan or don't have an idea and you want to jump in uh, to the chronological Bible, I think, Dave, you could check, but I think we're on maybe day 92. 93. So you can jump, do that or just jump into Judges and kind of read along uh, with us. Uh, we'd love for you to do that. A couple of class updates. Next week, uh, Steve will be teaching on Amos, so we're excited about that. And then on Easter Sunday, there's no Sunday school, okay? So we'll not be doing Sunday school that day. Just come to worship service. We'll be doing worship service outside again this Easter, so under the tents and everything like we did. We're going to be having the, the cross that we're going to be decorating with flowers like we did last year. So just kind of make a mental note to bring some flowers. I think it would look pretty sad if that cross was only half flowered. Uh, we're going to kind of cheat a little bit and sort of pre-buy some flowers as a church just so it has, has some on there. But last year it had so many and it was so cool and I just it was the coolest thing. And uh, so we'll all do it together. And also, just a reminder that our children's ministry needs some candy for the Easter, uh, Easter eggs, for the Easter egg hunt. They're asking particularly, not specifically not for chocolate candy, because that melts a little bit out there on the lawn. Um, and uh, nobody wants to see their cute little eight-year-old girl in an Easter dress covered in chocolate <laughs> melted nonsense. So just bring kind of more sugar-based candy, I guess, or, you know, gummies or jelly beans, that sort of stuff. Mom? Um, are we doing uh, the uh, Easter service at sunrise? Uh, no, we are not doing it at sunrise. We can always go, what's wrong with <laughs> No, no sunrise. 
You have to understand, you have to understand at sunrise, my parents have already been up for three hours, so uh, they're ready to go. But the rest of us maybe need a little bit more sleep, uh, so we're going to do it at the conventional time, uh, just 10 a.m. And also keep in mind, too, that there's a Monday Thursday service where we will be taking communion together on that Thursday night. That is always a great service. It really is. I mean, I say this about a lot of things. Oh, my favorite this. But it is one of my favorite services of the year. It's just a beautiful, you know, solemn, but just kind of togetherness service. Uh, I, the communion is always very meaningful. We're obviously celebrating Jesus and the Last Supper and remembering that. So come on Monday, Thursday, and then it, I think it will really help prepare your heart for the joy of Easter Sunday. So that's my, that's my update on some of the calendar stuff. All right, well, let's jump in. This morning, we're going to talk about the book of Joel. <laughs> How many of you love Joel? Okay. Is there anything better than Joel? How many of you came to Sunday school this morning specifically for Joel? Okay. Well, if you love Joel, or locusts, or the day of the Lord, or the Holy Spirit, then you are going to love this class. And if you love none of those things, we have donuts and coffee, so, uh, you know, we're glad you're here. Grab some. Though Joel is a relatively short book, just three chapters long, it packs a very powerful punch. It shows us how to lament, it teaches us how to hope, and it promises that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That comes from the book of Joel, Joel chapter 2. The book of Joel contains some of the earliest promises of the Holy Spirit. Somebody read Joel 2 verses 28 and 29 for me. We're going to have a lot of Bible reading today, so you can read it in your own Bible or it's on the screen. Now, we're going to be talking about a little bit about that more later when we look at some of the, the, the theological themes of the book. But if you don't know, think to yourself, where was that fulfilled in the scripture? Who specifically quotes the book of Joel in the New Testament? Just be thinking about it. We'll get there. The book of Joel reminds us that in the end, after God wipes away every tear from every eye, there will be a glorious future for the people of God. Somebody read Joel 3:18. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. So, just as uh, my mom reminded us from reading the book of Revelation, in the end Jesus wins. And there's a glorious future for the people of God. When we pray, your kingdom come, which we'll be talking about today in worship, we're asking God to fulfill the promises made to Israel in the book of Joel, knowing that we are included in those promises specifically because of Jesus. All right. 
Let's look at some issues of authorship and dates, the book of Joel. The first verse of the book identifies the author as Joel, the son of Pethuel. Anybody know who Pethuel was? Anyone? Joel's father. Joel's father. <laughs> and you are qualified to be in the Society of Biblical Literature because nobody else knows who it was either. Now, we don't know anything about Pethuel, but we can assume, based on Joel's name, that he was a faithful believer, a follower of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Who here knows, besides my mom and dad, who named me Joel, who here knows what the name Joel means in Hebrew? Dave, you, you, I'll call on you if no one gets it. Kate, I'll call on you if no one gets it. Anybody else? I'm just guessing. Now... Now, keep in mind, now this is just a little trick when you're looking at names in the Bible. Oftentimes, the J represents the Y sound, as in Yahweh. So usually, almost anybody with a J starting their name, it's something to do with Yahweh. It's something to do with the Lord. Yeshua means Yahweh saves. So, what do you think? Yoel. The Lord is God. The Lord is God. Specifically, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, is the one true God of all the earth. And so that'll be important later when Joel talks about the day of the Lord. We've been talking about this throughout the, uh, the study of the Bible, that one of the recurrent themes in the Old Testament is that Yahweh is not merely the God of Israel. He's the God of the whole earth. We were reading, I think it was maybe this morning in the book of Judges, where one of the leaders of Israel has a dispute with one of the foreign kings, and, he's, and they have a border dispute about which land belongs to which. And um, the leader of Israel mistakenly says, well, hey, didn't Chemosh, your God, determine where you're supposed to live? That was kind of a common assumption in the Old Testament days, was that each individual nation had their own individual God, and yet, the name of Joel reminds us that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the one and only true God. There are no other gods other than Yahweh. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That was sort of the Apostles' Creed of the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Yahweh is God. Now, it is pronounced in the Old Testament Hebrew, Yoel, but please don't call me that, okay? It's uh, pronounced Joel in New Testament days. All right. We know Joel was a prophet because the book is introduced with a standard uh, prophetic formula. In verse 1, we read, the word of the Lord came to Joel. That's the narrator's uh, indication that Joel was a prophet of God, and so the words that he's speaking have divine authority. Now, we don't know if Joel was bald, even though Michelangelo painted him that way. Not cool. <laughs> That's actually Joel. Look at him. Man. Where is he in Rome? What's that? Where is he? I think it's in the Sistine Chapel. Yeah, it's part of the Sistine Chapel. I double-checked a few people, and uh, that, they all say that's Prophet Joel. All right, throughout the book, uh, Joel addresses the priests and elders in a way that suggests that he was not a priest or an elder. So, for example, in Joel 1, verse 2, we read, Hear this, you elders, 
Give ear all the inhabitants of the land. So he's speaking to the elders from an, as an outsider's point of view. He's saying, talking to them. Uh, chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar of God. So again, he's addressing elders and priests, not as a fellow elder or priest, but as an outsider, someone who's not part of that. He has a unique role as a prophet in the kingdom of Israel. Most scholars believe the prophet Joel lived in or around the city of Jerusalem uh, because the book displays Joel's familiar familiarity with the city. The book of Joel contains six references to Judah and another six references to Jerusalem and not very many references to other areas within Israel. So we think that Jerusalem was likely his hometown or he lived on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Okay, historical background. Though we can't say exactly when Joel was written, the text does give us some clues. All right, you ready for the clues? The, uh, we got some Blues Clues fans in here. Oh my goodness. Uh, I have never ever in my life watched a movie in a car. It's always been kind of behind me. But our kids would watch Blues Clues, see DVDs on the car over and over again. So I know all the Blues Clues. All right, the first clue is that there are no references to the northern kingdom of Israel. Okay, so... Instead, Judah, and Judah alone, is referred to Israel as if no other Israel, i.e. the northern kingdom, exists. Does that make sense? Um, there was a time after that where there was a division. One of the, the son of Solomon was Rehoboam. He had a dispute with one of Solomon's leaders, uh, Jeroboam, and the kingdom of Israel split in half. They called the ten northern tribes Israel, the two southern tribes, Judah, and normally in the prophets, there's sort of an interaction or indication of those two different kingdoms. In this, there's only Judah, and it's referred to as Israel. So, for example, somebody read Joel 2, verse 27. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. So, right now, one nation. Now that means Joel was probably written after the Assyrian exile in 722 BC. 722 BC, the northern king of Israel is taken off into, into exile. And so our guess is it's written after 722 BC. All right, some more clues. There are also several clues that the book was written after the Babylonian exile in 586 B.C. A couple of notes here. The exile is treated as a past event. The conquest of Jerusalem is mentioned. No king is mentioned. After the uh, restoration uh, under Ezra and Nehemiah, there was no king as there were in previous generations. The temple plays a positive function. There are no references to idolatry or syncretism. Those are very common in the book of Hosea. We saw that last week. And we'll see it next week again in the book of Amos. They're constantly talking about syncretism and temple worship and all the problems with that. And the nation, and the nation of Edom is condemned, possibly because of their mistreatment of Israel during the Babylonian exile. 
Joel takes special aim at Edom, which would make sense after the exile, but probably not before. They might be included in a list of nations that God was condemning, but he really singles them out for special condemnation. Now, given the uh, lack of historical specificity in the text, several recent commentators believe the book of Joel was intended to serve as part of a lament liturgy in the temple. Okay, so they would use this book as a reading in the temple in order to express lament. So here's a quote from a couple of commentators, Ray Dillard and Tremper Longman. They write, Notice how the text is dehistoricized in reference to the confession of sin. Although the text calls for repentance, no particular sin is mentioned as causing the plight of the people. The less specific a liturgical text is, the wider the range of its applicability. The feature of the book this feature of the book may help to explain not only why it is so difficult to date, but also how it achieves the kind of timelessness that makes it such a powerful literature in our own day. Does that make sense? When we confess our sins in worship together, we usually uh, confess general sins generally, and then allow people to confess specific sins specifically. This text Likely a liturgical text used in the temple is sort of dehistoricized, which helped them you know, use it in worship, but also helps us as we read the book because we can very easily see our own situation in the story of the text. Does that make sense? Sometimes one of the difficulties of reading the Old Testament prophets is it's very, very specific. And you start to think about, well, why do I care about Edom, and why do I care about Assyria, and why do I care about this king or that king? Joel is not like that. It reads as a very general word of the Lord, okay? All right, let's look at some of the structure. The book of Joel can be outlined under two major headings, judgment and mercy. In the first part of the book, we have the judgment against Judah and the day of the Lord, and we'll unpack this. And then in the second part, we have the mercy of the Lord and the judgment of the nations. So judgment against Judah in the day of the Lord, which is a day of condemnation and mercy. We'll talk about that. And the mercy of the Lord and judgment against the nations. Do you see that, that literary style and those kind of parallelisms there? It's a very well-written book. All right, let's look, get into it. In the first part of the book, we read about a terrible locust invasion. Did anyone have any experience with locusts? Anyone ever seen a locust or know what locusts do? A couple of you, right? They destroy everything. It's a real disaster. Even the telephone poles. What's that? They, Even the poles. they eat the telephone poles? Wow, I was not aware of this. There you go. <laughs> that does that does uh, that does explain the numerous references to telephone poles in the book of Joel. <laughs> All right, somebody read Joel one verse four. What the coating locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. There's so many different kinds of locusts. They're they, they are identifying specific kinds of locusts. 
Somebody read uh, chapter 1, verse 10. The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil languishes. Now, again, probably self-evident, but remember, this is an agrarian economy. This is, this is everything to them. I don't, our nation is unique in that we have a number of different economic sectors. We're reading a lot these days about Russia. and One of the main exports and financial uh, things in Russia is petroleum. It would be as if the entire petroleum is industry in Russia or maybe Saudi Arabia or one of these other oil-producing countries were completely wiped out. People would be in absolute panic because that's their one way of providing economic prosperity and sustenance for their people. Now, according, according to Joel, the disaster is God's judgment against Judah, and he urges the people to repent. I'll read this one, Joel 1, 13, 14. He writes, Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, Pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders of all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Are natural disasters ever a direct judgment on people? Yes? No? What do you think? Let's say there's a, um, we'll go back to, um, was it, I guess, a typhoon in Japan. Remember that? This typhoon came in, wiped all these people out. Judgment of God? Yes? No? Maybe? What do you think? So what she said was correct is that it's all a result of the fall, which is in a sense a judgment. When Adam and Eve sinned, sin not only affects human beings, which it certainly does, it actually affects the natural world as well. And so there's a sense in which the whole world is broken and damaged because of sin and will be restored when Jesus comes again. Kate? I think that there are instances that we see in Scripture where God does unleash a natural disaster. I mean, like Sodom and Gomorrah. Whatever that fire from heaven was, you know, it obliterated the city. So, mm -hmm. but I don't think, you know, we can't look at Hurricane Katrina and say that that was a judgment against New Orleans. Like, I don't think that that's, you know, so I, I think that as Jeannie said, it's, it's, there's a, a general brokenness to the world. And we have to be careful not to, you know, say, well, it's because of X, Y, Z that this happened. But mm -hmm. I do think that we can see that God does sometimes use that as an instrument. Mm -hmm. Do you have another comment over here? Somebody else had a hand up? Don? It was in Indonesia when they had the tsunami that killed 250,000 people. That mm -hmm. happened Christmas Eve. Mm. And, and so Christmas Eve tradition, where they attacked was, or where the tsunami hit, the Christians go up into the local villages to get the Christians mm. and their families. So when the tsunami comes, mm. all the Muslims at this time thought it was judgment against them. So they interpreted it as sort of a direct judgment from, from their, their God. That's interesting. What, what, is there any passage in Scripture that 
where Jesus speaks to this question of um, natural disasters or bad things happening and judgment. And do, do you know is what it I'm saying? this man who sinned or his parents that this happened to? Him? Yeah, in John chapter 9, Jesus encounters a man who's born blind. And the disciples' first question to him is, Jesus, tell us, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Their natural assumption is if something bad happens, it's a direct result of either your sin or your parents' sin. We talked about this in the book of Job. Remember retribution theology, this idea that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. Therefore, something bad happened to you. It's probably your fault, right? A lot of people assume that. Now, we're going to talk about this a little bit in the sermon, so I'll, I'll keep my powder dry. But we will be talking about the difference between God's revealed will and God's hidden will. Now, in a case like this, in the book of Joel, we can say with great certainty that the locusts were a judgment of God because we have God's revealed will, his divine commentary on that locust plague. However, God's hidden will is much more shrouded in mystery. When God does not speak to a natural disaster like the tsunami or the you know, Hurricane Katrina or some other mass shooting, a terrible event like this, then we must be much more cautious in saying, well, this is what God was, was doing. Um, Joseph didn't know what God was doing when his brothers threw him into the pit. He did not know. Now, God was doing something, and later, after the fact, after he saw all the puzzle pieces come together, he said, aha, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. He brought me here for such a time as this, to sort of borrow a line from Esther, you see? So, we always have to be a little bit cautious when we sort of say, well, yes, this natural disaster, whether it's the locusts, the hurricanes, or, uh, you know, whatever floods well, that was God judging those specific people. If God tells us, then he tells us. If he doesn't tell us, he doesn't tell us. Okay? Dad, you have a comment? Well, yeah, there's Tower of Siloam in the record. Yes. And people said, you think that fell down because they were, they were worse sinners than you are. Mm -hmm. And basically speaking, after a hurricane or a tornado, mm -hmm. Yeah, another perfect example of, of saying, hey, here's this natural disaster that happened. You know, you think you're better than those guys? It's <laughs> sort of like, you think they deserve this, but you don't deserve anything? Or that, It's just a wrong way to think about it. So just thought I would introduce that, that idea, that concept. All right, let's move on. Now, in the second chapter, Job liken, likens the recent plague of locusts to a future event, which is the coming day of the Lord. Somebody read Joel 2, verses 1 and 2. These are just sample verses. It, there's a lot more discussion about it than this. Somebody read that for me. Their 
right? So he's using that imagery of darkness and gloom. One thing, you know, if there's like a locust plague, it, it gets so dark, it really blocks out the sun. You know, it's almost like it becomes nighttime. And he's saying that the day of the Lord is like that. Now, after painting a grim picture of God's judgment in the first part of the book, Joel urges his people to repent. If the people repent, God will have mercy on them, and God's judgment will not only be averted, it will actually be transformed into blessing. Does that make sense? So you might anticipate, or I might anticipate, well, if we repent, then this terrible stuff of this day of the Lord and the judgment, all this stuff, well, that just won't happen to us. True. But it's even better than that. Not only is the judgment and the condemnation and the destruction averted, it's inverted and transformed into something beautiful and good. Somebody read Joel 2, 18 and 19. Here's a, here's a question, sort of a trick question. Is our forgiveness the good news of the gospel? Is, is you are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. Is that the good news of the gospel? Yes, yes, no, half. What do you mean? How is it, how is it half the gospel? If, it means true. And we say, hey, your sins are... Jesus died on the cross for you. Your sins are forgiven. We can go to heaven, yes. Our slate is wiped clean, but also the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. So, Boom. Yeah. Yes, theologians call that double imputation. Okay? What we mean by that is that... Uh, so do you know what imputation means? It's like giving. Uh, and so the... Uh, our sin is imputed to Christ. We are forgiven. It's not held against us any longer. But the double imputation is the righteousness of Christ is then imputed to us. And so we receive all of the blessings that come with our union with Christ. Over and over again in, the, in his uh, epistles, the Apostle Paul says that we are in Christ. That's one of his favorite ways about talking about being a Christian. We are in Christ. Therefore, all of the blessings that Christ experienced in terms of his relationship with God, in terms of the joy, in terms of the love, in terms of the kingdom of God, is all imputed to us if we are in Christ. Now, again, we'll talk about it in the sermon later about the kingdom of God and in what sense is the kingdom now and what sense is the kingdom later and you know if I have all these blessings why do I always have you know bad hair days and you know messed up stuff happens all the time right we'll talk about it but think about that double imputation all right now the ultimate blessing will be the blessing of the Holy Spirit I'll read this one I think we read it already and it shall come to pass afterward I will pour out my spirit on all flesh your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Did God fulfill that promise? And if so, when did he fulfill the promise? Did he? 
I'm seeing some head nods. Yes, he did. Okay. How do you know? Yeah, right. The day of Pentecost. At the day of Pentecost, what happened? Right, so they're up in a room, they're praying, probably a good idea, so they're praying, the Holy Spirit descends on them, what does it look like? Not a dove, that, that was Jesus, but what does it look like for them? Fire. So many church logos have the fire, you know, but that's all Pentecost imagery. So the tongues of fire descend on their head, all of a sudden they're able to, it's a little bit unclear whether it's a speaking miracle or a hearing miracle, uh, but somehow... They preach, Peter preaches to all the nations, everyone hears the gospel in their own language, and who does Peter quote in that, in, in that sermon? Joel. He quotes the book of Joel. And so it's a clear connection, sort of a promise fulfillment. It's been uh, promised in the book of Joel, fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. So cool. All right, now the second book of the uh, part of the book concludes with God's judgment on the nations who have oppressed Israel and the uh, promise of God's presence with his people. Somebody read Joel 3, 19 through 21, some last verses of the book. Um, does anybody get, get away with anything, ultimately? You know, the great conceit of world leaders, now and always, is, well, I am the great king, I'm going to do this thing, and there will be no day of reckoning. God says very clearly that all are accountable to him, uh, and ultimately, those that shed innocent blood will be held liable for this. Whether it's in modern or modern day warfare, whether it was in ancient day warfare, nothing escapes the justice of God. Uh, God will, in the end, take His stand with the poor, with the marginalized, with the oppressed, with the refugee who has been driven from their homeland because of war. God will make things right in the end, and we read about that not only here but so very beautifully in the prophet Joel. All right, let's look at some theological themes. The first one, the big one, is the day of the Lord. Excuse me. <clears throat> the phrase, the day of the Lord, is used five times in the book of Joel. Now, that might not, might not seem like a lot in just three chapters, but to put that number in context, that phrase, day of the Lord, is used 13 other times in seven other prophetic books. So it is very much concentrated in the book of Joel. In each instance, the day of the Lord is a time when the presence of the Lord brings judgment and or deliverance and blessing depending on the circumstances. The day of the Lord is a dark day for God's enemies, but it's a day of joy and celebration for God's people. The book of Joel teaches us that ultimately delivery from God God's judgment 
is not based on ethnic identity, but on repentance and faith. All right, let's keep going. Oops. Next theme, repentance and faith. Joel distinguishes between outward religious observance and inward, genuine, heartfelt faith, heart transformation. Somebody read Joel 2, verses 12 and 13. So, uh, is it true that the sacrifices saved God's people in the Old Testament? No? Yes? No? Okay, no. Why did they not? Well, why did God give them all these sacrifices to do if, uh, if, if that didn't save them? What's the point? Right? It points to Jesus. It points to the ultimate sacrifice points out to Jesus, who was, in the words of John the Baptist, the last, really the last Old Testament prophet, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What matters is true heartfelt faith. Trust that God will provide a, a sacrifice. What did Abraham do when he went up with his son uh, on the mountain? He, remember, he walked him up the hill, and God said, hey, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son. And uh, the boy says, Hey, where's the, uh, where's the animal here, you know? What are we going to sacrifice when we get up there? What, what, is, what does he say? I heard in the front row. God will provide. God will provide the sacrifice. That is the, the essence of saving faith. You can summarize it that way. God will provide the sacrifice. Or, looking back, God has provided the sacrifice. The person of Jesus Christ, God's own son. Yes, Jack. In terms of, say, say again. When Israel was saved by way of punishment, mm -hmm. it's the collective you, we, but obviously not everybody is. Yeah, that, that's true. There's always, there is always this sort of remnant theology within the Old Testament that there's a small remnant of faithful prophets or priests or temple servants who are following the Lord, even amongst this great upheaval. And yet there's a tension there because often Israel, as a nation, is punished in sort of a geopolitical way for the sins that they have committed as a nation. And so that is a source of concern for all of us because we are ultimately held accountable. We are justified or condemned based on our own actions. And yet, in the temporal world, actions have consequences. And whether we are excited about that or not excited about it, we are citizens of Escambia County and of the state of Florida and of the United States of America. And if our nation acts in an unjust way and we bear judgment, uh, loss of influence in the world, loss of military campaigns and different things, we are part of that uh, because we are citizens of this nation. So there's a little bit of, of attention there. There's consequences for things that happen. Uh, if something terrible were to happen in our church, God forbid, you know, some 
great moral failing or some great uh, negligence that we have committed. Um, even though only a few people may have committed that or one person, there's a sense in which we all bear the consequence for that person's actions because we are one in Christ. We are brothers and sisters. And so we don't bear it the same way as that individual person. But again, there are actions have consequences in the world. Good point. Yes, Elizabeth. but also that Jesus has been punished for our sin because mm -hmm. I, I do hear people being confused about mm -hmm. that and, and not understanding like mm -hmm. no you're not being punished for your sin you know Jesus has taken that punishment for yeah. your sins once and for all so I think it's important just to yeah that's I, that yeah that's mind. yeah that's true um, it's th there are it's probably the difference maybe between consequences and punishment maybe is a good way of thinking about it. Um, yeah, our, our, actions, uh, our actions have uh, consequences. Uh, you know, if, uh, if for, I don't know, you know, for whatever reason I commit some grievous sin, uh, I could be punished in the courts, you know, um, and I, I can't say, well, hey, uh, you know, I plead not guilty because, hey, I did the crime, but I'm saved, so, you know, see you later. It doesn't work that way. It does not work that way. And so, yeah, that's probably, that doesn't, now, anyone, the worst murderer, the worst criminal can call upon the name of the Lord, be forgiven, will ultimately not be condemned on the day of the Lord. That's the good news. But there are temporal uh, consequences for things. That's a good point. All right, let's keep going. Um, I think we got that. Okay, repentance and faith. Now, when it comes to living the Christian life, it's not enough to go through the motions. Ain't no, no Napoleon Dynamite fans oh, here. The happy hands. Yeah, Remember that? Okay. Um, our hearts have to be changed. Okay, we have to have our hearts changed. And that is the unique role of God the Holy Spirit, which is our next, next theme. All right, the outpouring of the Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of the Lord is always, always empowers or empowered individuals for a specific prophetic calling. Those individuals were usually older Jewish men, not women, not children, and definitely not servants. Anyone think of an example of someone who was sort of empowered by the Spirit for a specific thing in the Old Testament? Anyone? Eli? Deborah? The people who made the skillful, like, artistic stuff. Yeah, yep, yep, that's a good one. Uh, we read about old Gideon uh, just recently in the book of Judges. He was clothed with the Holy Spirit, like a cloak is what it says. Kind of cool imagery there. Samson, yep, many of the judges. Now, let, consider this quote here. Uh, in ancient Israel, the sociological pecking order placed... The older free Jewish male at the top. Most of Israel's prophets belong to this group. An ancient prayer uttered at daybreak by the Jewish male reflects this. Thanking God that he is not born a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. Wow. I have never prayed that prayer, uh, which is why I've been your pastor for 10 years. 
If I just keep that prayer out of my mind, I won't get out of here. All right. Now, Joel predicted a day when the Holy Spirit would be poured out on both men and women, on both old and young, both free men and slaves. Again, very shocking when you think about it. We're very used to the idea of sort of an egalitarian thought of, hey, you know, slaves and masters, it's like, you know, we're all the same, we're all brothers. That was not how they saw it back then. So this would have been a very shocking prophecy for, for the people of ancient Israel. In Romans 10, the Apostle Paul quotes Joel, verse, Joel 2, verse 28, to argue that there is no difference between Jew and Gentile and that all who call on the name of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, will be saved. In Acts chapter 2, the prophecy of Joel was fulfilled as the Holy Spirit descended on the disciples, empowering the church for life and ministry. All right, let's wrap it up with this. We're going to look forward to Jesus. Ultimately, all of these books are foreshadowing in some way the coming of Jesus. So let's look at, at how Joel fulfills the prophecies. Jesus fulfills the prophecies of Joel. Uh, though God's people are often rebellious, God will once again dwell with his people. He did that through the coming of Jesus, and then later on, through the coming of the Holy Spirit, on all believers. Uh, we lament living in this fallen world. Uh, we recognize that this world is broken, but we also look ahead to the day when God will make it right. Okay, one of the recurring themes in the New Testament is the necessity of faith. In the end, people will not be saved because of their outward religious observances, but through faith in Jesus. On the last day, the day of the Lord, when Jesus returns, God will gather all of his people from every nation. The day of the Lord will be a day of darkness and judgment for God's enemies. That is certainly the case. But it will be a glorious day of joy and rest and praise for God's people. Somebody read Revelation 7, 9 and 10. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see how all of these things threads and themes that connect the book of Joel will ultimately be fulfilled at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, we have little glimpses of it now. We have the Holy Spirit, which was fulfilled in all this. But at the very end, the ultimate day of the Lord will be a day of joy and celebration for God's people. It will also be a day of weeping and gnashing of teeth for people who reject the grace of God, for people who decide that they will be their own saviors, that they don't need any help or any mercy. So we work now to make Jesus known to all people so we can say, hey, no matter who you are, old or young, Jew or Gentile, whatever race you are, whatever class you are in our society, if you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved and you will enjoy the blessings promised in the book of Joel. All right. Hey, that's all I got for you today. And we got about uh, five minutes left or so. Any questions about Joel? What would you like to ask about Joel? I will tell you all that you would like to know about Joel. <laughs>
I'm milking this joke, I want you to know. I've been looking forward to this one for many, many weeks. Anybody? Joel? Anyone just want to say how much you love Joel? No? Okay. You have a puppy to prove that. Yes, I do. I do. All right, great. Well, if you think of some, come back next week. We're going to do Amos, who is, which is a really good one. Steve's going to be teaching on that. He taught his life group, and everybody says it was the greatest study. They all loved Amos. So he's going to do a great job, great teacher, and he'll be back next week to point us to Amos, the shepherd of Tekoa, right? Okay, good. Let's go to God in prayer. Lord Jesus, again, we thank you for the hope that we have because of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that the promise is true, that all who call upon Jesus will be saved. Lord, I know so often we reduce our religion and our observations to sort of going through the motions, reciting prayers that we don't really think about, reading scripture that we don't really seek to apply to our lives. Lord, forgive us. We pray that we would not be like the ancient people of Judah, that we would instead be inspired by the prophecy of Joel to rend our hearts and not our garments, that we would be filled with your spirit, that all people from the youngest member of our church to the oldest member of our church would know the, the power and glory of living with you. We thank you for that, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, see you in worship.